jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net This is Laura Craven for Lost Angeles on jasoncharles.net. Coming up on Episode 9, Part 1 of my conversation with Tim Lindsay of the Virginia Robinson Gardens, the unique historic estate in Beverly Hills. There's a scientific method to conservation of museums, and then we're on the National Historic Register that addresses how one should operate, protect, preserve, conserve a building of this historic significance. And we have a guided tour that's 90 minutes long with highly trained docents that give you a portal into the life of the Robinsons when they lived here in the early 20th century and what that was like. This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on jasoncharles.net, podcast network. Today, I am at the very beautiful Virginia Robinson Gardens in Beverly Hills, California. My guest is Superintendent Tim Lindsay. Thank you so much for your time today, Tim. You're very welcome. I wanted to start off by talking about the genesis of this amazing property. It was purchased in 1911 by Virginian Harry Robinson, and to also touch on, Harry was the son of the Robinson's department store empire, and Virginia Dryden's father, Nathaniel Dryden, was an architect, the architect that designed this amazing space. So we have a lot of that lineage to thank for, for what exists here today. And although Virginia lived to be almost 100 years old, and three years before her death bequeathed this amazing property to L.A. County, Harry died at the age of 53 in 1932. So in the time that they spent together, they traveled the world and they populated this amazing estate inside the house and out with what they learned in their travels and with objects and seeds and cuttings that they also brought in. And if you could talk a little bit about that timeline, the this is the earliest days of Los Angeles, Beverly Hills wasn't a city yet, right. and what contributed to how they acquired all these amazing artifacts? Well, probably the best way to describe what's occurred here is through serendipity. So they actually found this property 450 feet above sea level after they were lost on their way to the L.A. Country Club, which is not very far from here on Wilshire Boulevard. It just opened there. And they were going to the opening, and they were here on a late afternoon, came up this dirt road and saw the Pacific Ocean, Catalina Island. They could see snow in the San Gabriel Mountains, and from here you can actually see 122 miles all the way out to Palm Springs and San Juan Cinto on February days. So it's a view property. They're both from flat parts of the country. She's from East St. Louis. He was from Brockton, Massachusetts, where you know there aren't, uh, there's not a lot of topography, and so they were undoubtedly fascinated by this topography and the views. So they bought the property the following day. They bought 15 acres. They closed on Valentine's Day uh, escrow, and they immediately started to think about the type of house they would build in the middle of um, lima bean fields. So it's almost an irony that all of their families in the civilized Pasadena area 
which was settled by people from Michigan and Indiana and um, Illinois, and uh, you know it was laid out in the very eastern feel. And you go there today, Old Town feels like any city back in the Midwest. But they had traveled, her family, as she was very young, uh, to the Columbian World's Fair, where they were featuring architecture from France and Italy. So Bulls Art style architecture was a big part of that fair. They had full-size buildings with these different uh, architectural elements. And so her father then designed and built a house for them as a belated wedding present. And uh, the house was completed in 1911. In 1912, the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is walking distance from here, was erected. And then that brought a lot of people from back east here to spend the winters. And by 1913, the city of Beverly Hills was laid out. The bean fields were still mainly in view, uh, but they had roads with curbs, telephone poles with no wires, sewers, uh, and they had the beginnings of a a three-tiered city. And it had an area designated for downtown, which now became Rodeo Drive. So the house is then filled with artifacts that they collected on their travels. And Virginia would like to tell her friends that she and Harry, after they married, set out on a three-year honeymoon, (laughs) which is in part true. Uh, They were gone intermittently for three years because Harry was designated by his father, who was chairman of Robinson Department Store, to learn the business uh, from the bottom up. And so he was then uh, tasked with being the procurement officer. And he said, you need to go to the New York office where we have tickets waiting for you to travel by ship to England. And then you're going to the continent and you're going to be traveling to uh, India and uh, Tibet. And and they went all over and they ended up, you know, practically circling the globe through the years. And the whole mission was to enjoy themselves like a working vacation and then procure items that none of the other competitors, the other department stores, to get things that were unique and of high quality. So then they would have to figure out ways to get them back to the store, and that was called the trade route. And then once you figured that out, that was a big secret, because then once that would get out, other people that are your competitors would use those trade routes. So Virginia sometimes would be in the city when Harry would be out in the country uh, for days at a time, and she would have a botanist with her, and they would be collecting plants. Or sometimes she'd buy other things for the house that would be shipped on the same boat back to the States as the bigger purchase, which was for the store. And as we looked you know, at the house and toured the house, we have a lot of artifacts that are representative of the French culture. We have Louis XV and Louis XVI uh, chairs, and we have boule tables, and we have Dutch inlaid furniture. And all of this type of furniture was being bought by Americans at a time that wasn't that great for Europeans, and the British in particular, because they were off riding the wave of industrialization and were in recession, whereas America was just getting revved up with mechanization and industrialization, so they had a lot of discretionary income, that is, uh, certain Americans. And they were traveling to Europe and purchasing these artifacts from dukes and other people of uh, political positions that were now being reeled in with a death tax of 80%. So 80% of whatever value your land had went as a tax back to the government. And uh, this was the repercussions of giving so much land away uh, by the king during the time when he didn't have a standing army. If you had a country estate, 
the understanding was the land was yours, but you had to use your people, which numbered around 3,000 people, to be trained as soldiers. So if you're having an invasion, then you could utilize these outposts. But once they had a standing army and enough time elapsed, they couldn't afford to have that uh, spread of wealth, and they wanted it back into London. So that's when the 80% tax was implemented. So, and as a result, then, a lot of those items, they came to America in a way of repurposing. Yes, and luckily conserved, because then the wars come. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when we talk about the contemporaries of Virginia, we have one person in particular, Henry Huntington, who was probably him and his wife, Arabella, Um, Undoubtedly, they were the richest couple in the United States for about three years. He was a book collector, and because of the death tax, he was able to purchase uh, many of the first editions of Shakespeare's plays from the Duke of Chatsworth. And she was, Arabella was a collector of art. And so all of these pieces uh, may have fell into disrepair, uh, could have been sold to somebody that didn't have a means to then protect them from the various elements. So in a large, very significant way, the United States became a reciprocal of artifacts that then could be shared later with people that wanted to understand their interest and how they were built, the methodology and just the uniqueness and the quality of the work that went away, you know, when mechanization develops uh, everything into something that becomes almost uh, redundant. And it's, and it's, it's, not a, it's not a personal expression, but it's just something that is made in mass production okay. that has a purpose but isn't of sort of the value, the historic value. Mm-hmm. Or the aesthetic value and in many cases. Yes, true art pieces. We are surrounded in this absolutely gorgeous living room. This whole lifestyle that they developed then was very unique to them in particular. And when Harry died in 1932, as you mentioned, Virginia was quoted as saying, I still live my life the way I did when Harry's alive, but it just makes me sad that he's gone. And so she lived here a total of 66 years. And during that time, she built the garden. And when she was asked by people, how long did it take for you to make a garden? And she would say an entire lifetime. And then she used the estate as a platform for fundraising for her charities. And uh, some of her biggest charities were the Hollywood Bowl, was the Hollywood Bowl. So the Hollywood Bowl, as we all know, is a very famous amphitheater, outside amphitheater, that was the startup for many people, including, the, you know, like huge names, um, the Beatles mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, everybody of significance in town played there. And it went into bankruptcy during the Great Depression in Virginia and another uh, few other ladies of her means uh, got together and raised the money to, to then bring it out of bankruptcy. And uh, it, it survived. And then for 32 consecutive years, she had the kickoff party for the symphony, the Alley Philharmonic, actually, here on the lawn, which was a fundraiser. So they would bring an entire orchestra up here. She would have liked to, but they only had, you know, like the principals come mm-hmm. and play a few seasonal things that would then interest people in buying the tickets for the entire right. season. Oh, that's a great thing, because the Hollywood Bowl indoors is one of the main music attractions of this city, even now. And she was always very kind to children. As you mentioned, they didn't have any children of their own. 
And in the neighborhood here, there were always children on the street. And so she would always have a Christmas tree in the house for the immediate family. And then she would have a Christmas tree out at the step down to the cul-de-sac. And that would then have presents after the kids in the neighborhood had their own presents opened at their homes. She would have presents from, obviously, Robinson Department Store waiting for them up here. And they loved animals. And uh, Virginia started the first dog show in Beverly Hills. And it wasn't just for hybrids. It was for pound puppies. And so they liked animals. They liked children. And she was a a big supporter of two uh, foster homes that are still going. uh, Children's services are what we refer to them now. There's one called Maryville. And there's one called Hathaway Children's Uh Services. And we still have a science fair here, and we've invited those same institutions to come and participate in that that day of activities. Wow, that's got to be really magical for the children to come up here and see this amazing property. And then probably one of the most competitive uh, philanthropic endeavors she was involved with is um, everybody in Los Angeles knows the Chandler family because they Mm -hmm. were the owners of the Los Angeles Times newspaper. And when um, Dorothy Chandler uh, was raising money to build the music center in downtown Los Angeles. The Georgia Chandler Pavilion. And and it was named after her for all her philanthropic efforts. She and Virginia were a little bit competitive, maybe a lot competitive about how much money they could raise each month to build that three-theater complex. So that was also a byproduct of her philanthropic efforts. Yeah, well, a little competition goes a long way. (laughs) That's good. All of Los Angeles can be grateful for that. And thank you again for the great tour of the gardens, which we'll get into, and the house as well. All the furnishings that are in here are very much the same that they were when Virginia lived here. Exactly the same. It's an as-found museum. So remarkably, we've had uh, Getty interns come from the Getty Center and spend summers here. Mm -hmm. And so all of the surfaces, both horizontal and vertical surfaces, where every picture, every knick-knack, where all the nails are in the wall, uh, when we take pictures down to paint, all of those surfaces have been mapped. So we just go into our database, which is called Past Perfect, and we know where to put the nails back and which pictures go where. I mean, there's thousands of artifacts here, and and even though everybody tries to memorize where they go, when we have our huge fundraiser in May, everything in the house gets disturbed and put into storage uh, in large part because we have to protect the artifacts and then we bring florists in to augment the rooms. But when we set the house back up, you know, a week after the event, then it's as found. And, you know, when you'd open drawers, uh, you would find all her pictures. We have thousands of pictures of all the costume parties and other types of parties held here in Virginia and Harry through the years and utilizing the property in the way that they did. And then uh, remarkably, we have two different passports for Virginia, and she's two different ages. Really? Yeah, she was getting younger. (laughs) Interesting. Well, that degree of care and detail, even knowing where every single nail is supposed to go, I mean, that is a Herculean effort in itself, and I'm sure a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, there's a scientific method to conservation of museums. As we were talking earlier, a house museum is the most common reoccurring museum in the world. And there are a lot of procedures and a lot of knowledge that has to go with how to restore and to what degree to restore. And, of course, there's a budget component to raise money. And then we're on the National Historic Register, which means there's a whole volume of the Department of Interior that addresses how one should operate 
protect, preserve, conserve a building of this historic significance. Uh And then the interpretation is a whole other component in what you talk about when people come here. And we have a guided tour that's 90 minutes long with highly trained docents that give you a portal into the life of the Robinsons when they lived here in the early 20th century and what that was like. And you walk away feeling refreshed, renewed, restored yourself because you understand there was a civility, a predictability, a tradition in the way people interacted that we sort of miss today to some degree. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's fascinating. We'll, we'll get into those docent-led tours and I'll give out the details at the end of our talk because I would really encourage anyone who's in the Los Angeles area to check this out. It's a very unique situation, and you just feel like you're kind of above the city, surrounded by the lush gardens, which will be our next chapter to talk about. But before I leapfrog over there, I wanted to talk about the Renaissance Revival pool area and the um, pavilion, if you call it the pavilion. Yeah, the, you can call it the pool pavilion. Mm-hmm. That's the correct name, although it was commonly referred to by the Robinsons as the playhouse. Right. And that's because of its function. So the pool pavilion was built in 1923, and that included two guest rooms, a solarium and a swimming pool. And they also constructed a tennis court that's adjacent to the pool pavilion. So between the tennis and the swimming and then the dressing rooms that you use to change in, that's how it got nicknamed the Playhouse. <laughs> and it is an architecturally significant building, as you referred to it as the Italian revival style. So it's an early Italian Renaissance uh, with three Roman arches and pairs of Tuscan columns and this wonderful art form called Scraffito, where you work with wet plaster over three days, introducing color and designing, in our case, cherubs Mm -hmm. that are blowing some horns to call probably some significant events that's going to happen. But it's a delightful building and probably uh, the most interesting building we have architecturally. The uh, architect was Sumner Hunt, Mm -hmm. who was also the architect for LA City Hall and the Bradbury Building here in Los Angeles. Oh, it is. Well, it's very special and a big part of the tour. Quite The tours actually begin in the pool house. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I wanted to move on to the five distinct gardens that are here. And we'll speak a little bit about the, the botany that is part of that, because that's really a primary part of your background, is understanding the plants and the landscape and and all of that. So the Italian Renaissance Terrace Garden, which is just so beautiful, so colorful, talk a little bit about what is planted there and how it's in descending levels. Mm -hmm. Well, we're sitting about 450 feet above sea level, and we're 21 miles to the Pacific Ocean. So the Italian Terrace Garden is on the west side of the garden of the property. It varies in elevation by about 250 feet. And so when they bought the property, they bought it as a view property and it had a flat portion where this, the main house is the pool pavilion and the, and the staff quarters. But on either side, the land falls down quite severely. So that meant you had to terrace it. And luckily for Virginia, her second major domo was a landscape architect uh, trained in Britain and he laid out the pathways so that you could transverse the six and a half acres and you know with stairs and 
uh, various terraces. And then once the hardscape was in, Virginia then really just took a step back in working with consultants. Uh, some some of them we mentioned were with the Disneys. She was friends with Walt and Lillian Disney. And one that was here that quite often was Bob Evans, who was the right hand for Walt Disney in deciding what properties to purchase and then how to fill them up with plants. So she would have some of these people come by uh, and help her decide. But she also had a botanist. Her and Harry employed a botanist to travel with them internationally and source some of the rare plants. And sometimes Virginia would see plants that she thought she wanted to bring back, and Mr. Rhodes would advise uh, would you take a cutting or seeds or uh, how are we going to root cuttings? You know, what what are we going to do? How do we get this back? And one of the most significant plants in bloom right now is the bougainvillea at the end of the tennis court. Oh, I saw so that. She, you know, she was in beautiful. South Africa and she was there on business and then she was playing tennis with whoever was hosting them. And the this bougainvillea was growing at the end of that tennis court. So she politely asked if she might try a cutting. And they said, absolutely. So I can just imagine her riding back in TWA in first class, oh. holding this little cutting on her <laughs> lap for 14 hours or whatever it is to get back here. And then it rooted. So obviously that plant has a natural life cycle. And when it dies, we don't want to be without. So we've propagated it by cutting, which means it's the same genome. And so when it dies, we'll have 10 in reserve. So we'll be able to get one to replace it. Oh. Uh, but back to the Italian terrace garden. So there's uh, multiple terraces, and the first one you come to has a fountain, and there's three ceramic frogs. So that's called the three frog <laughs> fountain. And then there's a camellia that we looked at earlier that's in bloom. It's a semi-double orchid pink camellia, and it's named for Virginia Robinson by one of the plantsmen that she quite often used to buy azaleas and camellias from the Nuccio family. And then there's also camellia right next to it that blooms white and it looks just like the silk uh, camellia that you wear if you buy a Chanel dress. They give you a silk camellia, that's the insignia for Chanel. And she preferred to wear the real one when it was in bloom and that's mm -hmm. seasonal. And she did that and, and she named it Coco Chanel after her dear friend. And that is she, sweet. she bought a lot of uh, coutures from France and from Italy because of the nature of the Robinson department store. And so she was quite mm -hmm. friendly with Coco Chanel. And then you move down through the musical stairs. And that's a wonderful area. It really, it sounds so beautiful as you're walking down the water feature, moving down the stairs, and the audio element of that. I mean, that is a real gift. It's just unique. Yeah, there's a simplicity about it because the runnel that drops the water down each of the risers on the steps mm -hmm. uh, creates the sound. And then at the bottom is a, a wall that has the family crest. And so as you descend the steps, I, my theory is that the sound of the falling water gets thrown back at you from re deflecting off of that wall. Right. And, you know, it's modeled after the Alhambra in uh, Spain. So mm -hmm. it's very Moorish. And then you drop down to the next terrace, and you have the citrus terrace, where we have the grotto, which is the next water feature. And then moving down through that space, each terrace has its own water feature. And then when you get down to uh, the Neptune terrace is where you have the terracotta statue of Neptune, which he's just had a partial restoration. And we were told he was bought in Florence by the Robinsons, and uh, was thought to be 
a hundred years old when they bought oh, uh, this this statue. It's been on the property for a hundred and eight years, and when we had it restored, they said we were wrong. It's three hundred. He's three hundred oh. years old. Wow, and. Is that the same for the the lion statues? Right. Oh, yes. They're about the same age. They, they were bought uh, collectively. So they were oh, all bought okay. at once, and they were all thought to be the same age. Wow. And they, those have also been restored, and they're, they're 300 years old. Oh, what an amazing piece <laughs> of history. Wow. And then since we were talking about the citrus trees, there is a garden that's called the Kitchen Garden. If you could talk about what kind of herbs and vegetables are grown there and who gets to enjoy them. Oh, well, right now we're in winter, so-called winter, it's 78 degrees. So we're growing the cool season crops, which you usually start those in late August, early September from seeds. So we're talking about a sauté of lettuces, spinach. You plant your carrots, your radishes, your beets, and turnips. And then we have cauliflower and broccoli. And we're harvesting right now um, and eating from the garden lots of vegetables. But uh, the beneficiaries are twofold, and we garden year-round, so there's really no rest here. Right. You have to garden year-round. So we have about 2,000 elementary-level kids that come through, and they're on a docent-led tour, and this program dovetails with the state curriculum for third graders in science. And so they learn about ecology. We've just installed a body of water we call the Children's Wildlife Pond, where they're going to study metamorphosis of tadpoles turning into frogs. And then they eat from the vegetable garden. So there's a whole component on healthy eating, which is a movement nationwide, and it was started by Mrs. Obama. And so we have our program dovetailed with that national incentive for healthy eating. And so when we pull carrots out of the ground for inner-city kids, this is very magical because they have no concept that any of these root crops grow underground, radishes, beets, turnips. It's a mystery to them. And they they appear in the grocery store, and and they're clueless. And they come here, and they get a full on view of what it is to grow plants and to eat from the garden. So they eat salads while they're here. That's great. We have to entice them with a little salad dressing. Right. But uh, (laughs) they do eat very fresh vegetables. It's all organic. That's awesome. So they're seeing the whole cycle of that (laughs) down to where they get to be a taster at the end. And and we let them harvest. Some of the kids, we we we, we ask them for volunteers to pull out the carrots and whatnot. And then we clean them in front of them. We just wash them off and we said would you like to eat it raw mm-hmm. and that's another concept to some of them are used to frozen vegetables so and and then we send them home with um, little seedlings that they've planted while they were here and then they get to watch them grow mm-hmm. and we hope that then the parents have enough questions uh, and certainly at the schools there's a lot of gardens that go in at schools now mm-hmm. for the elementary level kids and they can enjoy planting things there if they don't have a place at home and then the other beneficiaries are we have many volunteers and all our docents are volunteers, mm-hmm. and all our board members are volunteers, and we have 9,000 hours of volunteering here a year. So all of those people take the vegetables with them home. Great. A living kitchen garden. A- another one of the gardens that is just so lush and so special and visually spectacular is the Tropical Palm Garden. And these were seeds that were brought from Australia, and then as the seeds were dropping when these trees were growing, they just continued on. And it looks like there are thousands of palm trees there. I mean, there probably aren't. We're actually looking for someone to count all the trees <laughs> <laughs> because we're hoping there's that many. That's the appearance. It's a, it's a full-on um, 
forest of king palm trees. And these king palm trees come from Queensland, Australia. And when you garden, you realize that uh, they're continually changing. And like life itself, there's a lesson that you have failures and you have uh, many accomplishments. And this garden area we're talking about is two acres, and it's glorious. But prior to that, in the early 30s, uh, it had languished. It was planted originally like the Italian terrace garden with Mediterranean plants. Mm -hmm. However, it's an east slope. It's a heavy soil. It stays wet for long periods after the rainy season. And so citrus trees and other trees are from Mediterranean climates where they have long, hot, dry summers and not a lot of heavy soils. They languished after a period of probably about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so then in uh, the early 30s, Virginia consulted with a landscape architect. Uh, His name was Charles Gibbs Adams. And he was uh, the architect for W.C. Fields, Charlie Chaplin, and George Cooker, who were friends with the Robinsons. And they had a place in Los Feliz that they called the park, where they would meet for various reasons, mainly discuss their next movie projects. And Virginia saw this place. It was It's still in existence, and I've been lucky enough to see it. There's a waterfall, and it's very tropical, with like splitly philodendrons, palms of all types, large hibiscus plants. And so she was very attracted to that type of garden, and it wasn't a hard sell for the architect, Mr. Adams, to say, let's do something tropical. So um, we have a reason through our archives and our research to think they all came here in a bag with, they were all seeds, and they planted all these seeds and they all germinated. As you mentioned, uh, we're one of the few places, if not the only place in North America where they were very prolific. And so now we have so many, we actually have to dig them up and move them. Right. <laughs> uh, and it creates a lot of shade and a lot of visual interest because they're, you know, 65, 70 feet right. tall, and you feel so uh, miniature when you walk through the space. That's and then there's true. this whole temperature difference. So it's Mm -hmm. always about 10 degrees cooler in there. And then the sound of the wind, you know, as it moves through the palm fronds, mimics like rushing water. Mm -hmm. And then we have a waterfall in the area as you get closer to, you can hear the water cascading down the slope. And the pathways that are built to go kind of move through the palm forest, it's just great because you're changing your altitude. (laughs) And, you know, in some places... They're so much taller than they had been when you were on a different level. And it's very significant that, you know, in the reading that I've done, I don't think that there's a larger stand of palm trees in this country anywhere. No, um, one day we had a visitor from South Africa. He's actually a trained botanist. And he was here, and I was here, and I gave him the tour of the King Palm Forest. And he was just so fascinated with this area, not because it was something new to him or foreign, because he was this was his home, Queensland, Australia. But when we finished, he just turned to me and he said, this is the most remarkable representation of what the natural environment is where they would grow, because he said there would always be topography and there's always a body of water at the lower part, because they only can grow like 300 feet away from natural body of water because they need that. And he said to me, the only thing you don't have is the Crocs. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. Well, yeah, we can get an artificial one. (laughs) Right. Wow. I can imagine, yeah, what you're you're saying. This garden estate must be world famous amongst botanists everywhere. Yeah. And another one of the trees here is the great coral tree. And from what I understand, 
is the parent of the coral trees that grow all along San Vicente Boulevard, mm. where, you know, on certain like mornings, you can see just so many runners running across. And I just have to imagine that they don't realize that those trees came from this amazing grand coral tree that yeah, sits that, here on this property. You know, I can't tell you what year it was that somebody came to Virginia's front door from the city of Los Angeles, but was one of the city workers who had passed down on the lower portion of the property. There's a road called Cove Way that led up to Pickfair, where her dear friend Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks lived. And they were on that road, and they saw this coral tree. By the way, there's two blooms on it today. It just starts blooming in February, and it's this coral color, very orange, very distinctive bloom that looks like if you were snorkeling or scuba diving some of the coral. Uh, It's from South Africa. We know they collected seeds when they were traveling, and that's how they started the tree. Uh, so the city employee sees it in full bloom, shows up, finds its way to the front door of the estate, which isn't easy because it's all convoluted getting here. So many turns and bends in the hills of the Santa Monica Mountains. So they said, may we have some cuttings? And she said, of course, you know, take as many cuttings as you need. And it's if it's for the city, she didn't know at the time, I don't think, where they would show up. But as we found out later, when they rooted, they had, you know, this, I don't know how many, if you were to count them, there's at least three dozen coral trees along the median in San Vicente. And as you mentioned, that's where all the joggers run. And so from a horticultural standpoint, it's interesting because this is a South African plant that then was surrounded by turf for the convenience of the joggers. However, to water the turf enough to keep it green, uh, you overwater the trees. So the trees grow fast and the growth is soft and then the joggers have to be careful to sort of run uh, away from the trees because they drop limbs because of the soft growth. And here we don't water at all in the summer because it's all decomposed granite around the tree. So it mimics the um, climate that it adapted to live in. Mm -hmm. So when you you look at Los Angeles and the types of plants here, most of the plants that we have have come from either other Mediterranean regions or they were also transplanted with the people that came from the eastern seaboard. And when you move to a foreign land, which California was very foreign because it's, uh, it represents 3% of the world's surface, that's all that is Mediterranean uh, climate, and it's the most desirable climate to live in, hence everybody came here. And they would bring with them fruit trees, they would bring with them their mother's roses, they would bring with them cuttings from uh, whatever they could grow to eat. And so many of the plants that came with the people are also transplants, and some wouldn't grow here because there's not enough chilling hours for plums Mm -hmm. unless you go north. But when you just take a step back and look at the plant palette here, we can grow more plants, more different types of plants here than anywhere else in North America because we're in the L.A. Basin, and the coast of California is moderated by the current from the Gulf of Alaska, so we're warmer in the winter than we should be, and we're cooler in the summer than we should be. And so it's a remarkable place to be as a horticulturist, and they understood that. And then one of the things you like to do when you can grow roses on the 1st of January is you'd like to tell people back east that haven't really, you know, evolved enough to know that California is where you want to be. So they would have the rose parade and they would just really put it out there that, look, we're growing roses and we have thousands of them on each of our floats and we groom ourselves. (laughs) And on January 1st, every year it's bright and sunny for the most part. And about 3,000 people move here after the parade airs. (laughs) 
For part two of my conversation with Tim Lindsay, superintendent of the Virginia Robinson Gardens, listen to episode 10 of Los Angeles here on jasoncharles.net podcast network, arts and culture shows. You've been listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. JasonCharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.